You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, fishermen, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, kids, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listing area on the West Marin Coast are the Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, which together protect 4,581 square miles of rocky shorelines, sandy seafloors, rocky banks, and deep-sea canyons and maritime artifacts. So today we have a few different guests and topics. We have a very full show. With me in the studio, I am pleased to welcome Kelly Collins-Geyser of Slow Food San Francisco. She recently put on the Slow Fish Conference in San Francisco, so we'll hear about the outcomes from this gathering focused on clean, traceable seafood. And around 11.30 a.m., we'll switch gears and come back to the coast and be focusing on the California Coastal Trail. I'll be talking with Morgan Vasali and Jocelyn Anevaldson, who hiked the entire 1,200 miles. We'll be chatting about this experience and the status of the California Coastal Trail. And then finally, this week is also World Oceans Week, so we'll have our Positively Ocean episode at the end focusing on that. So right now, I'd like to welcome Kelly Collins-Geyser, and you're live on the air. Kelly, welcome. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So slow fish sounds like it's tied to the slow food movement. Can you give us a little bit of background on what slow fish is all about? Sure. So slow fish started... Back in the early 2000s in Genoa, Italy, it happens every two years on the odd years. And the first time it came to North America was in 2016 in New Orleans. And I got to go and was extremely inspired by the folks that spoke there and the people I met. And fast forward, I became closer to connected to the Slow Food San Francisco mint and I wanted to bring Slow Fish to San Francisco. And so part of our deal with Slow Food or Slow Fish was to establish it and have it every other year on the even years. So it was rather new. It is new. And the whole premise with slow food and slow fish is just understanding the source of food, knowing the farmers, knowing the land and how it's grown and where it comes from, right? Is that kind of the premise of it? Right. Good, clean, and fair. Good, clean, and fair labor as well. And so that transfers to slow fish with this sourcing of seafood. Right. Knowing where your seafood is coming from, knowing how it was either caught and or processed, and who benefits from that, and how it was uh, preserved for you to purchase at at the store or from the fishermen or wherever you're purchasing your seafood. Is there a label for slow fish? There's all these labels, the Marine Stewardship Council and Seafood Watch, and how does slow fish interface with those other 
uh, labels that are really trying to trace seafood. Yeah, we we talked a lot about that uh, certification prog- program with Slow Fish, um, but we found that you would have issues where things are changing rapidly. You know, there may be a fishery that's becoming endangered or fishermen are having a hard time or so things are always evolving mm-hmm. and and there seems to be more and more um, with certification programs a uh, price that's paid for that. So you find fisheries coming together and having to pay hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of dollars to be certified. So we didn't feel that that was a program that we felt comfortable doing. I see. So at the Slow Fish Conference, who came together? I would say the majority of people we had in San Francisco were up and down the West Coast. So we had a huge amount of folks from Alaska and policymakers there. And um, we had a lot of folks from Washington State, Oregon, California, um, and even Baja. And then we had, you know, a few random folks from the East Coast and New Orleans and um, even the Midwest. And we had a Slow Fish International representative from Italy as well. Wow. And are these um, actual fishing folks themselves or people who buy fish? Right. We had a lot of fishermen, fishing women, um, and fishing families even. We had a lot of policymakers, a lot of slow food um, advocates. We had a lot of folks that are within the processing of slow, of uh, fish and distribution. These are very educated consumers that we're talking about. Those folks that actually have the money and thought and time to really think about their food and their sourcing of it. And how do you hope it might infiltrate the other markets for every the average consumer? So buying seafood that is uh, caught and processed within the USA. Um, would be the best choice scenario without, with or without a label. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, asking your your supermarket, the the people who are purchasing the fish, where did this come from? What do you know about the process or the procedure? And the more questions we ask, just like with our meat or our dairy products, then I think it comes in full circle. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the conference a little bit. Right. So we did a couple different events that I can kind of go through. Our first event was with Quesa at the ferry, ferry building at the, the farmer's market there. And we did a seafood throwdown. So we had two chefs, um, Matthew Dolan from San Francisco and Arnett King from Oakland. And they did, we, we brought in a fisherman from the market. He brought us um, a local seafood, which no one knew about, but it was very common. It was black cod, (laughs) (laughs) but um, it's still not as common for some of the consumers and how you would cook that. So they did a cook-off there at the market, and it was super fun. Um, We had some great participants cheering them on, and Arnett won by one point, <laughs> <laughs> which was quite a blow to Matthew Dolan since he had just come out with a, a book called oh. Simply Fish. <laughs> but um, Arnett did great, and they were both wonderful, and it was a really great opportunity for us to talk about, you know, local fish versus fish from far away, what to ask your your chefs or your waitress at the restaurant, what to ask your you know, seafood counter person at the 
grocery store. So that was a really great opportunity for us to have an outward consumer-facing event. Because that was at the farmer's market, so it's educational right. for people at the market. Right. Did they know what they were going to be cooking at the, no. before they did no, this? They didn't. Oh, wow. <laughs> so did they just have like a slew of ingredients they to go were, find? In the... <laughs> they were allowed to bring three ingredients, and then we gave them $30 to shop at the market, which oh. isn't that much at that market. Yeah, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> All right. So the seafood throwdown was an opportunity to highlight a local fish and how you can prepare that and educate others. And what were some of the other events that took place? So then we had more of an event for uh, the attendees of the conference. So 2 by C opened their uh, seafood company in, in San Francisco, and they really focus on knowing who their fisherman is, what boat um, how the catch method was, the origin of the fish, all this information. So you are educated with the fit, seafood that they have. So they opened up their warehouse, and we had oysters from up from Alaska all the way down to Baja. We had maybe nine or ten different oyster companies there. And then um, the next two days we had our conference, and we brought in kind of a world cafe style of conference where we had several different places within one room and different topics and of good, clean, and fair. And we would just circle around the room and have it more of an audience open discussion. It was really fun and I think a lot of people came away with some great information. What were some of the topics that were part of that? So we had fresh versus frozen, (laughs) wild versus farmed, um, which, you know, it wasn't one thing or another. It was just talking about, you know, what are the differences? We discussed our 50-50. So so right now we we purchase as Americans, 90% of our seafood is away from um, this country. Is imported from outside. Is imported, right. And we export 80% of our seafood. So it's a huge, huge it's number. Crazy. I don't think most of us we, know about that. Yeah. And we we have enough salmon up in Alaska to feed all of the US, but it's all exported out to Asia and Japan. So that's just one example. So we really thought that we could push this campaign of by twenty fifty fifty percent of our seafood in the US will stay here. What's the main reason for most of our catch being shipped away? In some of the countries in Asia, Japan, China, it's part of their normal diet, and they're willing to pay for it. I see. Yeah, so paying for it. (laughs) Yeah, so the fishermen are able to to make a a great living wage and and ship their seafood out, out there. Here, there are people that are willing to pay for it, but a lot of the grocery stores, no, we're not going to sell salmon for $20 a pound. We're going to sell farmed salmon for $12 a pound. But that farmed salmon came all the way from New Zealand. So at some point, we are going to end up paying for it. It's so interesting if there could be some visuals that could show how the carbon footprint works with seafood in terms of the food that's caught here in the United States and where it goes and the food that we have here and where it comes from, I just, my mind is always on carbon footprint. Right. It's interesting. We're crossing ocean basins to deliver food to each other. <laughs> Were there discussions about habitats and supporting habitats to 
support sustainable fisheries in the United States? Yes. Well, there was some discussion on waterways and kind of protecting the water water rights and mm-hmm. waterways within the river system. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit more about that aquaculture piece. There seems to be a rise in the United States. I know that NOAA Fisheries, who manages the fisheries in the U.S. waters, has an aquaculture plan to support expanded aquaculture in U.S. waters with a lot of regulation and monitoring. What are the thoughts about that? Right. Um, You know, so I think there's several things to think about. You want to think about, you know, are these animals in such captivity that they're being fed medicines and antibiotics and it's kind of you know not a not a happy environment just like you wouldn't want to your chicken in this close quarters and there's a lot of nasty things that go on with that um also the feed and what are they feeding um their fish with and and then you know i guess supporting the the waterways you know how is how is the water being protected and not being polluted? So those are, I guess, three aspects that I think about mm-hmm. with aquaculture. I think that it can be done well, but it's definitely a work in process. Yeah, definitely. We'll be following that for sure. I'm interested in learning more because there's, you know, the low scale, which are just passively feeding on the on the plankton. Mm-hmm. And that actually helps clear up waterways. And then there's the predator based aquaculture right. that's very intensive and right so you have the the carn- carnivorous fish like tuna and salmon and that's that's the work in progress that yeah that i'm thinking about mm-hmm. for sure interesting so how are you seeing slow fish values show up in communities um, slow food san francisco we are a brand new board as of a year and a half ago i know slow food russian river and slow food uh, Sonoma County North are very proactive within their communities, and we would love to just join with hands with them and do more events with them because they have been very active with um, with their farms and bringing in people for picnics. Is the goal to inform consumers basically about yes the source of food through all the chapters and events? It's to counter the fast food culture. Really, so you know, are we are we thinking about where we're getting our food from? Are we supporting our community within the you know the food pr- processors and artisans and farmers? And how can we eat better and and be together as a community? I mean, being when you eat with a community in your gathering, you know that I think is true life. At its fullest. Yeah, it supports so many other values, too. When you, right. We, we have that opportunity. Well, what are some next steps for Slow Fish? Is there a way for people to follow what you're up to in Slow Fish San Francisco? Our planning team is, we're planning a Slow Fish 2020, and it will be um, somewhere on the East Coast, so up in New England area. So in the meantime, we plan to do a lot of smaller events within our communities. So all the folks that are within the planning committee in San Diego and Portland and Alaska and here can do little things. So I would suggest 
to be in contact with Slow Food San Francisco and get on their newsletter, you can, I, my email is on there and you can email me. It's kelly at slowfoodsanfrancisco.com. And, and we'll be doing little events here and there. I'm going to do a Know Your Fish dinner in September, October. So if you stay connected, then you'll know about that event. I know we want to connect with Slow Food Russian River, and they want to do some events as well. That's great. Yeah. So follow Slow Food San Francisco online, and there's a newsletter to right. sign up for. Every two weeks we have a newsletter. That's great. And it talks about all the things that are going on, and we also connect with the other Slow Food chapters. So if you're anywhere in the Bay Area, there's a place for you to go. Excellent. Well, Kelly, thanks for joining me in the studio and sharing out this conference and highlights and glad to see the infiltration too to the communities and the other communities as well in terms of promoting really understanding our sources of food it's so important for our health and supporting the local fishermen as well thanks jenny all right we're going to take a short break here with some music and uh, we're going to come back in a little bit and start talking about the california coastal trail This is Ocean Currents, and we're going to switch gears for this second half of the show and talk about the California Coastal Trail. Um, I have Morgan Vasali and Jocelyn Enevoldson from the, I guess, Santa Barbara area. I want actually want to catch up with you and guys find, find out where you're all at, but you're live on KWMR. Hi. Hi. Hey, thanks Great for having me here. Thanks again for calling in. And just for, for listeners, um, in 2016, Morgan and Jocelyn both hiked the California Coastal Trail, which a lot of people don't even know about. So I'm really happy that you're going to be talking a bit about that because it needs some some work to bring it all together. But they hiked the entire thing. And Jocelyn and Morgan, you were both just recent graduates from UCSB in your master's program. What led you to decide to hike the California Coastal Trail? Morgan, why don't you start? Yeah, we both met at the Brennan School of Environmental Science and Management at UCSB, where we were studying coastal and marine policy and science. And uh, following grad school, we were both awarded California Sea Grant State Fellowships, where we get to spend a year kind of doing hands-on marine policy work with different state or federal agencies. And so I was working with NOAA's Channel Islands National Marine Sanctuary down in Santa Barbara, and Jocelyn doing her fellowship with the California State Coastal Conservancy. And so the Coastal Conservancy is one of the lead agencies um, kind of in charge of helping to get the California Coastal Trail completed. And um, it was actually during her fellowship that she found out about the trail and told me about it and we were so excited about it and thought, you know, if we hadn't heard about this trail before, you know, chances are a lot of other people haven't either. And so we were really inspired when we both finished up our fellowship. We decided that we were going to through hike the entire thing and do an outreach campaign and do some mapping work and data collection as we were hiking to increase awareness of the trail and hopefully help to get it completed. Fantastic. About how, what percentage of it is actually a continuous trail or I guess how much of it is discontinuous yeah so the, the trail right now exists in segments all along the coast and the California coastal trail is known is known as a braided trail so in some sections um, you know there is a trail that's either on the bluffs or next to the coastline in some places you're actually walking on the beach and then in other sections there's 
not trail or beach accessible, and so you have to do road walking. And so those are kind of the incomplete sections. And so it's somewhere between about halfway to two-thirds of the way complete, depending on which section of the braid you're, you're talking about. So what is the history of the trail in terms of California policy and, and acts that were passed? This is Joe. Uh, so the California Coastal Trail was actually called out in the Coastal Act, which began as a voters' initiative, Proposition 20. And the idea, which was, you know, sort of brainstormed and brought into fruition into the early 70s, is that the public has the right to access the coastline, and the coast belongs to all of us in California. So in addition to establishing the California Coastal Commission, the Coastal Act of 1976 actually says that the California Coastal Trail needs to be completed and that it will be a way for the public to access the public right-of-way, which is wet sand below the, the high tide line. So this started in 1976, and we're about halfway there. Um, And the California Coastal Conservancy manages this effort? Yes. The Coastal Conservancy is the lead agency um, that's in charge of organizing all of the different jurisdictions. There are actually over 100 jurisdictions that own or manage uh, different sections of the California Coastal Trail. So it's a giant organizational feat, and they've been plugging away at it for the last 40 or so years. And there are a lot of really beautiful sections of trail, and they're still working on acquiring new parcels to create new sections of trail and also working on signing the trail, which is another big important part of this effort, which is to make sure that people know that there is a continuous trail that goes all the way from Oregon to Mexico all along the California coast. So I'm imagining to prepare for this adventure, you had to do quite a bit of research because it's probably not well signed as it is right now. How did you prepare for understanding where where to go in terms of accessing potential future links to this trail? And how did you prepare for that? In here, yeah, so there, there is actually a great book called Hiking the California Coastal Trail that was published, I believe, in the early, around 2001, 2002, that does provide a route for the whole trail from Oregon to Mexico. And so we followed that very closely day by day. We had the pages ripped out with us, and we would be following it along. So what it does is it basically shows you where the existing sections of trail are, and then it suggests routes to basically connect those existing sections of trails, um, taking roads that will have you know the widest shoulders and the least amount of vehicle traffic, so that, that way you can find the safest route. And so since that book was published, there have definitely been new sections of trail that have been added. And so part of our work when we were doing research was to find those new sections of trail as well so we can make sure that we could hit all those new beautiful segments of trail on our journey. That's fantastic. I didn't know about that book. That sounds like a great resource. Yeah. Um, Are there other organizations that are helping to work on this effort in terms of completing the trail, like Coast Walk, I believe, is one of the organizations? So in in addition to the Coastal Conservancy on the government side, there's also the Coastal Commission, um, which is a big partner on this, as well as California State Parks, and also Caltrans, because some of the trail is going to have to be along road shoulders, so they're an important partner as well. 
And then on the more, you know, nonprofit NGO side, Coastwalk, which is also now known as the California Coastal Trail Association, um, has been working on this also, you know, since the 70s. Um, they're, you know, a network of coastal activists that have been pushing for coastal access and stewardship and preservation and specifically working on the California Coastal Trail and leading group hikes on the California Coastal Trail for decades. Fantastic. So what were some of the key findings that you had along the hike in terms of recommendations to all of these players to keep this effort moving forward? Jocelyn, do you want to take that? So the first thing that we really realized was how much support there is for this idea of a completed California coastal trail. People that we came across along the way didn't necessarily know about the trail, and when we told them about it, they were so excited to hear about it. And, you know, people know about their local sections of the trail, which, for instance, the Venice Beach Boardwalk, that's part of the coastal trail. Um, The Lost Coast, that's part of it. But really, the widespread support was one of the huge takeaways that we, we got from our journey. Another thing is the importance of signage. So while we were doing our hike, we were mapping where the existing signs are and where signs are needed in different communities so that all of these different local communities can rally around this idea and get their county section completed. And it's through that process that the whole trail will eventually be connected. Another takeaway that we discovered was just the importance of funding. So trying to make sure that the California legislature really understands about the importance of a completed California coastal trail is a huge thing. And we really need to have advocates in the Senate and the Assembly pushing for more funding to get this trail completed and more funding for the Coastal Conservancy to make it happen So those are some of the big takeaways that we got. Fantastic. I'm thinking that, you know, some of the segments are trying to navigate around private land, land that was purchased before the California Coastal Act. Did you interact with any landowners along the way and and tell them about these efforts? And what were some of the responses from private landowners where their property might be next to the trail? That's a really interesting question. So, Actually, it turns out that the the biggest issue that we had was trying to navigate trying to navigate around military property rather than you know smaller sections of private property. A lot of the time you can if there are folks that have private property along the coast, you know you can walk along the wet sand that is public land, so that part wasn't as big of a deal. The sections that we really had to pay close attention to were the military properties, for instance, at Vandenberg Air Force Base. There's, you know, folks aren't allowed on the coast there, so there's a 100-mile inland detour that we had to manage. And and some of those military properties were a little bit larger of an issue than the private property that you're mentioning. What are some of the thoughts of how that might interface in the future? You said you had to do a 100-mile detour? around the base inland? Yes, we did. So, for example, in San Diego, the base down there, oh, which, Morgan, which base is that? 
Uh, Pendleton. Yes, Pendleton. So they've dealt with this issue by allowing folks to bike through the base, and you just have to register two weeks in advance, and we had to bike through that section because you're not allowed to hike. So that is one really great option that maybe some of the other military properties could consider bringing into play as we're, as we're trying to get this trail completed with a through route. What were some of your highlights in terms of specific areas that you really enjoyed for getting coastal views or appreciating our coastal ecology? Wow, there's so many. Definitely the the coastal redwoods up in the north coast in Del Norte and Humboldt counties were absolutely gorgeous. Just really rugged, breathtaking scenery, lots of epic wildlife up there. Um, hiking the Lost Coast was definitely a highlight. Some wonderful remote rugged sections along the Sonoma Coast as well. Yeah, those are a couple. Yeah, couple. I'll just chime in there. On the North Coast, we really felt the magic of the land there. You know, and we were really aware that even though the California Coastal Trail has been an idea in our minds since the 70s, this is actually a route that Native peoples have hiked for millennia. And so really, when we were hiking, we were focusing on respecting those who came before us and also thinking about those who will come after. And one of the lessons that we learned is the fact that some of these Native tribes really try to plan for seven generations Mm. beyond when they are walking this earth. And so... To have that kind of foresight is something that we think is so important for our society today to incorporate into all the decisions that we're making. So we really felt that spirit when we were hiking through the North Coast, especially because it was so remote and rugged, and then carried that with us down through Central California and into Southern California, where there's a lot more people and, you know, the communities are so vibrant there. And that was a really wonderful part was getting to connect with all of the different beach lovers that we met along the way. That's incredible. Californians love their beach and their coastline for sure. So I bet you they were super excited to see you hiking. <laughs> so yeah, it was fun. <laughs> how, can, how can listeners help support the completion of the trail at this point? It sounds like funding is a big issue for the state to continue connecting pieces of it and signage, but are there other ways listeners can help support the completion of the trail? Absolutely. So one of the important ways that you can help is by reaching out to your county supervisors. So in terms of actually on the ground how this trail is built, what needs to happen is all of the coastal counties need to make sure that they have an alignment for the California Coastal Trail in their local coastal program. And that's the planning document that these jurisdictions have that regulates development in the coastal zone. And so it's part of the duties of all of California's coastal counties to actually get this trail alignment into these plans. And the coastal county supervisors 
are the elected officials that are responsible for making that happen. So reaching out to your county supervisor, letting them know that you want the trail completed through your county is a really important way to make this dream a reality. Great. Morgan, do you want to add anything? Uh, There are also, you know, a lot of local coastal nonprofits and organizations that are working on coastal access, preservation, and specifically on building the California Coastal Trail. So in addition to, you know, potentially getting involved with Coast Walk or the California Coastal Trail Association, um, I'd encourage you to look at your local ocean coastal-related nonprofits as well for opportunities to get involved. And then, you know, get out there, get on the trail, get on the beach, keep an eye peeled for California Coastal Trail signs. There are some out there along the beach. It's a blue swirl. And if you see those signs, you can take a picture of it, post it on social media, tag it, start using the word California Coastal Trail when you're referring to your local coastal trail so that people start to think of it within the context of this wonderful braided network that will go along our entire coastline. Um, And we always tell people to please tell three friends about the CCT. Awesome. Tell three friends. I love it. Now, this sounds like an amazing experience to transition out of your graduate school work in environmental studies. What are you both doing now, now that it's been two years since you've completed this, this big project? Morgan, we'll start Dreaming with you. Dreaming about hiking oh. it again. <laughs> <laughs> I want to join you this time. Yeah, I uh, actually back at UC Santa Barbara. I'm working as a marine scientist for the Benioff Ocean Initiative, which is an organization based at UCSB that's focused on applied ocean problem solving. Fantastic. How about you, Jocelyn? I'm working as a policy analyst uh, looking at fisheries management for the state of California, and there's a big effort underway right now. The Marine Life Management Act is being implemented, and I am working to uh, represent conservation interests and focused on helping fishing communities make sure that we have an economically and environmentally thoughtful approach to fishery management. Wow. Both of you are total powerhouses. I'm really impressed. (laughs) Great job. And it's so exciting that you've been able to get right into the workforce for helping support people appreciating our coastal resources and and treating them well. We need more people doing that. one One more thing. We really could not have done this through hike without our best friend, Allison Amrine. She uh, was our support person who managed the logistics of this trip, and uh, she also went to Bren with us and got her master's degree in coastal science and policy. And she's just somebody who we need to thank again and again for really making this happen. So shout out to our Auntie Allie. And you were actually a trio. So was she traveling along with you as well? Yes. So for parts of the trip, we were we were backpacking. And for parts of the trip, she would come meet us when we needed to recharge all of our technology for our mapping work and our video work. And she would hike sections of the trail with us. Just had a really wonderful time and so exciting to know about all the powerful women out in the world who care so much about the oceans and really dedicate our lives, yeah, to making sure that this is something that the future generations will have to appreciate. Fantastic. 
Morgan, Jocelyn, and Allison, all three were through through hiking and supporting this wonderful opportunity to to raise attention about the California Coastal Trail. And I believe you kept a blog. Do you want to share your website so people can learn and, and see some of the highlights from your trip? Yeah, our website is mojocoastwalk.com. So Morgan, I'm Mo, Jocelyn is Joe, so Mojo Coast Walk. Excellent. M-O-J-O coastwalk.com. Well, I want to say thank you to both of you for your work and to Allison as well for helping support this awesome hike and this great opportunity to raise awareness of the California Coastal Trail. And I will certainly be following more of it. And I wish you lots of luck in your future endeavors. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much. much. You're welcome. Take care. Long live the ocean. (laughs) We've just been talking with Morgan Vasali and Jocelyn Evaldson, who hiked the California Coastal Trail with support of their third support person, Allison Armhine, and they are raising awareness about completing the California Coastal Trail, something that would be great to finish in the next uh, 20 or so years, I guess. It takes a while to bring these braids together, but lots of progress and uh, new additions have been made, so that is awesome. And you can follow their blog at mojocoastwalk.com. Learn more about the effort and how to continue to get involved. Well, we've had a full show here, and I'm going to try to squeeze this in. We always end our show with Positively Ocean, a curated piece by a volunteer, Liz Fox. And this week, we focus on World Oceans Day because it is Friday. So please stay tuned for Positively Ocean. This is Positively Ocean, where we celebrate the ocean and look at what's working well. I'm Liz Fox. In late May, a modern-day scene from Huckleberry Finn played out on a small river in Illinois, all in the name of ocean conservation. Bailey Ritter was following behind when three high school students from her hometown of Pontiac and the school superintendent floated two and a half miles on a raft they built solely from riverbank debris that they had collected in the days before. The ragtag team wove plastic grocery bags to form a sail bound barrels cast aside from farms for flotation, and improvised braided rope with plastic that they shredded from water bottles. And even though the local fire department deployed a rescue boat, they never needed a tow. People from the shore were calling, hey, like, do you need help? And is everything all right? And the kids would yell back, yeah, we're floating for a purpose. And it was this huge yelling back and forth of, okay, What actually is this World Oceans Day? Ritter, a 20-year-old DePaul University student, embarked on the project to creatively fulfill her responsibility as a member of the Ocean Project's Youth Advisory Council. Besides advocating for ocean conservation in Washington, D.C. this year, the Ocean Project asked its youth leaders to host their own World Oceans Day events. And Ritter held her event before the global June 8th celebration to reach kids before school got out and show them how trash in their landlocked state floats downstream to the ocean. This boat was more than a boat. It it was something that exists purely to get people talking. I think that if we can show everybody that they too have a voice in the game and that their, their voice can be heard, I think people will start to care. And that's the point, said Samantha Makowitz, the director of World Oceans Day at the Rhode Island-based advocacy organization. She maintains the website worldoceansday.org, which allows people and groups to post and find events anywhere. 
Makowitz expects more than 1,000 events this year. And the Ocean Project's connection to a very special network of zoos and aquaria help keep everyone in the loop. Here's Makowitz. We have tons and tons of zoos and aquariums celebrating World Oceans Day all over the country, especially in inland um, communities where they're not as connected to the sea, but the zoo and aquarium can help establish that connection for them. The growing network can take credit for the day itself. The Ocean Project worked for several years to connect with and coordinate through museums and aquaria and private sector networks to successfully petition the United Nations in 2008 to designate June 8th as World Oceans Day. The benefits of working with zoo and aquaria were twofold. First, the institutions already reached a broad audience across the country and world. And second, the audience they reach is young, open to new ideas, and eager to participate in determining their future. After Kidd's initial introduction to environmental science and conservations at zoos and aquaria, the Ocean Project picks up the reins to train youth, like Ritter, to work on solutions from multiple angles. That's why she'll spend the first weekend in June in Vancouver speaking to corporate executives about sustainability and her vision for the future. Then she'll head to Washington, D.C. for World Oceans Week. You know, if you're at a restaurant, why, why do you have the people leaving the table order for you, right? It, it doesn't quite make sense. I want to honestly change that dialogue and have them sit back down at the table. I want us to eat together and figure out a way where our future can be protected now. Back here in California, the Oakland Zoo will screen Moana on World Oceans Day and continue to educate patrons as to why there are no plastic straws, condiment packets, or drink lids in their cafe. Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary and Point Reyes National Seashore will provide a special day of programming at Bear Valley Visitor Center and the Point Reyes National Lighthouse Visitor Center. So if you're a kid, or if you have one and you're listening, Head on over and remember this message from Makowitz. And youth are the next wave of change, and they're the ones who, can, who should be leading the charge of World Oceans Day. And that's an example of folks doing right by the ocean. Until next time, I'll be searching for all things positively ocean. For Ocean Currents and KWMR Radio, this is Liz Fox reporting in Berkeley, California. Thank you, Liz Fox, for reporting about World Ocean Day, which is this Friday, June 8th. You can also go to worldoceansday.org to learn more about this effort to really raise awareness about the importance of our ocean for our lives. Thank you so much for tuning in to Ocean Currents, which is always the first Monday of every month. And I love hearing from listeners. So if you have topics, um, ideas, questions, comments, please email me at cordellbank.noaa.gov enjoy the ocean bay or whatever body of water you can get into safely this has been ocean currents here take care thank you for listening to ocean currents This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. 
To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Thanks to bensound.com for royalty-free music for the Ocean Currents podcast. For more info, visit www.bensound.com.